Uh, okay, so in the prayer meeting uh, each week, uh, we're following that little uh, Be Thou My Vision, and we read a creed. And, uh, and actually, uh, every Thursday morning through the month of December, I think we read a section of the Athanasian Creed. Uh, we'll be uh, stuck on another one uh, this month uh, as we uh, work together through it. Uh, the, the, uh, that little Be Thou My Vision does Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, and then the Athanasian Creed divided into three, and then back to Nicene and Apostles' Creed. And, uh, and we reflect on it a little bit, uh, and then we pray. And one of the things that I've noticed, uh, or that's come to mind as we've been doing that, is that Martin Luther, in his well-known letter to his barber, where, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if you heard the story, but his barber at one time said, you know, Dr. Luther, I don't really know how to pray. And so Luther wrote him a letter. And this letter has stood the test of time, and you can still buy copies of it, uh, where Luther outlines how a person ought to pray. And it's interesting. He says you ought to pray through the Apostles' Creed. And then you ought to pray through the Ten Commandments and pray the Lord's Prayer. And that way you can pray. And, uh, and then Luther maps it out, uh, how you go about doing that. Well, it's kind of funny. You don't usually think about praying uh, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and so in the prayer meeting on Thursday mornings, uh, we often comment how the, the creeds have been neglected, uh, but how it's a bit of a joy, you know, to get back to them and to pay attention to them and to note, you know, where we've fallen short uh, in our apprehension of the creed and then to pray uh, the truths of the creed uh, into our lives, into the life of the church. Um, we, we, we need to reappreciate uh, the creeds. Uh, Carl Truman actually has a book-length treatment on this. Uh, one of the early books he wrote 12 years ago called The Creedal Imperative, uh, where he talks about paying attention to the confessions and creeds of the church is a remedy against a lot of the nonsense uh, that is taking place in the broader evangelical world. Uh, now, it almost goes without saying in a Presbyterian church that we have an appreciation for confessions. Uh, we are rooted and anchored in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, but it, that extends and is even undergirded, I think, uh, by the creedal formulations that predate uh, the Westminster Confession. Uh, I grew up reciting the Apostles' Creed, uh, but when I was converted, I kind of left that behind. Uh, I, I, I knew these prayers that I needed to pray as a part of the Church of Rome. Uh, the Apostles' Creed was a big one, the Lord's Prayer was a big one, and Hail Mary was a big one. Uh, so I knew I was getting away from the Hail Mary, uh, but in the, in, in the doing of that, I, I kind of walked away from the Apostles' Creed as well. You know, the, to my embarrassment, uh, a couple came to me one time. I was doing their wedding. They were dear friends, and, uh, and they had a greater sensibility uh, than I at that time of the value of the antiquity of the church. In fact, I think he was pondering uh, getting an advanced degree in uh, the Patristic Fathers. And they said, we want to do the Apostles' Creed as a part of our wedding. And I said, that'd be fine. Uh, so they put it in the bulletin, and I put it in my notes, and all I'd put was Apostles' Creed, uh, very confident that I'd be able to lead the congregation in reciting that. Well, you know, through years of disuse, I completely botched it. It's unbelievable. And uh, as, uh, as it would be, uh, they recorded uh, that wedding, and so somewhere there exists uh, a monument to my uh, folly. 
uh, and my ineptitude. And, uh, but in the last several years, many years, um, uh, I have re-engaged with the creeds. I can now recite the apostles from memory on a good day. And, uh, and I think it's good for us to pay attention to these things. So because of the prayer meeting's enthusiasm, I thought it'd be good to do a series of sorts on the Apostles' Creed. I'm not sure that I will uh, be up here every Sunday evening. I know I won't be next month because it's the missions conference. Um, but when I uh, am up here, I would like to lead us a little bit in some contemplation on uh, what we learn in the Apostles' Creed. I'd like to encourage you to memorize it. I'd like to encourage you to think it through as foundational in your life and to really even, in a sense, punctuate your life uh, with a recitation of the Apostles' Creed and, and, and mostly and certainly uh, with this first sentence, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Uh, we often don't appreciate the wealth of what is being said and the way that in some senses the earth quakes beneath our feet when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, uh, the maker of heaven and earth. So um, each word in that first sentence could be a sermon, but I want to focus on the phrase maker of heaven and earth uh, out of Genesis this morning. I don't want to discount I believe. Uh, that, that probably would have been a better first sermon. Um, we're a mess in the English language with the word believe. Uh, we have so many crazy different variations on what that means. Uh, I remember that when the Red Sox would uh, go to the World Series uh, in Boston, you would see billboards up uh, that would say, just believe. And you could buy t-shirts. And, uh, and you know, we would imagine that so the exercise of some kind of faith uh, would bring the Red Sox to the World Series. You know, similar to clicking the heels of your shoes together and saying there's no place like home. You know, that's our English-American understanding of what faith is. Um, but when we say, I believe, uh, in, the, in the Apostles' Creed, we're saying much, much more than that. Uh, Alistair McGrath has a little book on the Apostles' Creed, and, and he expands it out uh, to say that uh, I believe uh, means not only assent, that we affirm that these things are true, uh, but it also means trust. Uh, that we entrust ourselves to them, that we lean on them. You've heard the illustration of believing that a chair exists and sitting in the chair are two completely different things. And so when we say we believe, uh, we're not just ass assenting uh, to the truth of the matter, but we're also entrusting ourselves to the truth of the matter. He goes on to say uh, that I believe also entails the notion of commitment uh, and even to the notion of uh, obedience. You know, the notion that someone could say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and then go his merry way without any reference to the wisdom or the statutes uh, or the laws of God is utter folly. It can't happen with any reasonable understanding of what it means to believe. So I don't want to discount that, but I still want to make my way to maker of heaven and earth. Neither do I want to discount the Father Almighty, uh, but God is so named twice uh, in the Apostles' Creed, and so we can get back to it later. Uh, I want to pay attention to maker of heaven and earth. Uh, so it is my conviction that Genesis 1 needs more attention. I think it is a big mistake uh, to dismiss it, obviously. I'm sure everyone in the room feels the same way. Uh, I also think it's a, a bit of a mistake to imagine that you have mastered it. 
uh, to imagine that you have it in your hip pocket, uh, that you own it. Uh, one philosopher describes uh, the first chapter of Genesis as a salve uh, for human arrogance. And uh, if you know yourself to be arrogant, if you know yourself to lack humility, I won't ask for a show of hands, uh, I would say Genesis 1 would be a good place uh, for you to sink your teeth. Uh, we need to hear something akin to God saying to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And approach this with a good bit of humility. So let me read these two verses and then we'll uh, dig into it and make some uh, application. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Uh, that much is God's word, and we believe it's true. Uh, so again, very briefly, first it's said that in the beginning, and that boggles the imagination, that there is a beginning. Before all else, before time, before anything else existed, a time that cannot even be imagined. This is enhanced by John chapter 1, uh, where John, I think consciously mimicking Genesis chapter 1, uh, writes in that in the beginning was the word. Uh, that in the beginning there was already something there. And that's implied uh, in the passage here. Uh, this is a time, again, that cannot be imagined. Uh, we understand there to have been a beginning. And we understand that at that beginning uh, something happened. And uh, what is said is that in the beginning God. And in some ways you could kind of stop right there and you're well on your way uh, to what the rest of the creed says. Uh, but in affirming that God was at the beginning, we affirm that he is without beginning, that he's without begetting, that he's without opposition or limitations of power. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in the inferences. But this is kind of critical. Uh, some people have uh, done some digging into this lately, and you're finding it popping up more and more in popular literature. Uh, you know, the heavy tome is a book called Biblical Critical Theory uh, where the writer gets into some of the details of uh, what the creation account is asserting. And, um, and one of the things that it's asserting over against all other competitive creation accounts. See, there were other creation accounts in existence when Moses wrote this. There were other understandings about the way the universe came into being, the world came into being, but all of those had to do with conflict. All of those had to do with opposing forces coming together and one winning. Uh, you know, kind of the way that we view history, uh, that opposing forces come together and the victor emerges and history is written by the victors. This account says something completely different from that. There was no opposition. Uh, there was no battle. In the beginning, there was God. In, begin in the beginning, before the beginning, was God and that he created the heavens and the earth. Uh, it's interesting the way the first chapter goes, or the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I, I read a Bible translation one time, and maybe you're familiar with this, that said in the beginning, God began creating the earth. Uh, that's a wrong translation. That's not what the text says. Uh, this text kind of stands alone all by itself. In the beginning, God created all of the known universe. Everything that you know, everything that you can see, everything that has ever been discovered by science was created by God in the beginning. 
Um, I think that uh, the Nicene Creed expands this and says that he is the creator of all things visible and invisible. Uh, so all of that was created by God, almost in a sense, in an instant. Now, we, we know that it, it, it is drawn out uh, more than that in the rest of the chapter, but that's not what the first verse says. The heavens and the earth, the entire organized universe, everything that is, was brought into being by God, was created by God. Uh, we call this creation ex nihilo. And that's what the first verse is about. Out of nothing, God created the heavens and the earth. And when we say that, it's kind of interesting. It's a philosophical statement uh, because nothing can't really even be described. Jonathan Edwards, uh, the early American theologian, said that nothing was what the rocks dreamed about. Uh, John Gerstner, a 20th century Presbyterian theologian, said that anyone who thought he could describe nothing must have those rocks in his head. Uh, it can't be described. You know, we get into the point, and this is, again, something that I want to try to settle with you tonight, is that when you confess, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, you have taken a step off a cliff. In a sense, you have no idea what you're talking about. But you are taking a step off a cliff knowing that the net of God's word is there to catch you. Packer, I'll quote him for the second time today, says the act of creation is a mystery to us. There is more to it than we can understand. We, we can't create by fiat, and we do not know how God could. To say that he created out of nothing is to confess the mystery, not to explain it. In particular, we cannot conceive how dependent existence can be distinct existence, or how angels and human beings in their dependent existence can be not robots, but creatures capable, creatures capable of free decisions for which they are morally accountable to their maker. Yet scripture everywhere teaches that this is the way it is. So there's a lot of mystery in the world, there's a lot of mystery in our faith, there's a lot of mystery in the scriptures, and it begins right here. In the beginning, God created uh, the heavens and the earth. Uh, now, the second verse talks about something different. Uh, the, the story begins with the earth already in existence. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Uh, the earth is already in existence, but it's something uncreated and disordered. It's unproductive. It's unhabited uninhabited. Uh, there are uh, kind of well-known Hebrew words there, tohu vabohu, that have to do with the chaos. And chaos is uh, correlated elsewhere in the Bible with evil. Uh, but there is this uh, chaos that needs to be organized. <clears throat> God's creation, another Old Testament professor says, reveals his immeasurable power and might, his bewildering imagination and wisdom. His immortality and transcendence, ultimately leaving the finite mortal in mystery. So that's basically what the passage says. But, and I think there are implications of that that we ought to let uh, stir our brains and maybe overwhelm us a little bit. The thing that I want to say most stridently uh, up front is that this has nothing to do with science. Uh, this is theology. 
And, and this was not written, I and mean, it's my contention, it was not written to answer uh, the questions of 20th century science. Uh, this was written to the 20th century and the 19th and the 18th and the 17th and the 10th and the 5th. Uh, this was written to a scientific mind, but it was also written to a non-scientific mind. And, and it carries the same clout, it carries the same weight. Uh, so, if it's not science but theology, what do you learn about God in these verses? Well, the first thing that you learn about God, and this is a very important thing, and I'm only going to say it in one sentence, but it's that God is not a part of his creation. God is other than his creation. God is distinct from his creation. He is not in any way controlled by his creation. Now, there's a, a man named Peter Jones. I don't know if you've heard of this guy. I think that some of his material has been used in Sunday school here. Uh, an incredibly sharp, brilliant man uh, who has a, a, an organization that he calls Truth Exchange. And, and he, the cornerstone of that organization is the difference between viewing the universe as one with God contained in it and, and viewing all of reality as two with God outside of his creation. And Peter Jones has extended, expanded that into several books and, and dozens and dozens, hundreds of lectures and classes. But that's the first thing that you learn when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, is that God is different from his creation. He is outside his creation. He isn't subject to the same things to which we're subject within creation. Secondly, <clears throat> he is self-existent, which is kind of, similar. He is uncaused. In himself he's unknowable and unanswerable and answerable to no one. He's unknowable, he's answerable to no one. You think about this. Every human being presumes within his own brain the capacity to imagine God. I think if you uh, were to go out on the street and conduct interviews or go into your neighbor's house, say, you know, who do you think God is? You know, you'd get a lot of opinions. You know, we imagine the way that we can kind of assert ourselves and say this is what God ought to be like. And in fact, if you were to present a biblical revelation of who God is, you might get pushback from your neighbor saying, well, that's not the God I believe in. I believe in this kind of God. And, uh, and, and to say that God is the maker of heaven and earth means that he is uh, inscrutable and he's unknowable. And the only way that God can be known is that when he decides by his own will to reveal himself. And so the only way that we can know anything about God is that God reveals himself. Everything in our experience has origins. God does not. He can't be explained or known as other things are. And this is unsettling uh, to the inquisitive mind. You know, it's one thing to say that I don't know something. It's another thing to say that I don't have the capacity to know something. I don't have the ability to know something. I can't get there. There is no technique for observing and defining God. It can't be done. Thirdly, he's self-sufficient. He has no needs and depends on no one. We human beings are definitively dependent beings. We depend on so much. God depends on nothing. The universe evaporates and God still is. It's such a foolish notion to imagine, as the poets have done, that God needs us in any way. God has never been lonely. 
He does not need worshipers. He's under no constraint, no obligation, no necessity to create. He doesn't need helpers, although he invites his people into his work. Doesn't need defenders, although in the interest of others, his people may provide testimony. And in his independence and in his self-sufficiency, you would understand that God doesn't subject himself to the foolish and insane ramblings of someone demanding proof. You've probably heard that story of the famous atheist who decided to test God and went out into a field on a rainy and stormy night. And in the midst of all the lightning flashing and the thunder rumbling, shook her fist at the sky and said, you know, I demand to know uh, whether you exist. And she went back home, not being struck by lightning, and reported to all her followers that God truly did not exist. Um, It could even be said, I think, from Psalm 2, that God laughs at such a thing. Uh, He does not submit himself to that insane demand. Rather, the scripture says, he dwells with the brokenhearted. Uh, God created the world simply for his own pleasure. It's the only reason that he created it, because he wanted to. And that action is not comparable to human selfishness. And and we begin to understand that relationship with him uh, is entirely dependent on him. That faith in him, trust in him, is so critical. uh, That in order to be with God, uh, faith and trust and commitment and obedience are the necessary avenues that God has opened up uh, for us to be able to enter into his presence and know him. And it's an amazing thing that that also would be, uh, by the testimony of many, such an indescribable joy uh, to be able to come into God's presence. Uh, Lastly, fourthly, he is eternal. He always was, he always will be. His life is that which is fit for eternity. He has a life in himself. It's not granted from somewhere else. That's the amazing thing that Jesus says in John chapter 5, that just as the Father has life in himself, he is granted for the Son also to have life in himself. Uh, That Jesus' life is not derived from his parents as all of our lives are, but it is self-contained. It is is a part of who he is. Uh, An implication of his eternal His eternality is that he's unchangeable. Another implication is he's inescapable. So all of these things, I don't know if this is a very edifying sermon for a Sunday night, but I I hope it can be. Uh, All of these things are an affront to our native sensibilities. And what I want to show you in its most raw form is, is is the Bible's assertion that God is holy. You know, R.C. Sproul does an amazing job and he made a little cottage industry out of uh, explaining to us in some robust and interesting detail uh, what is going on in the Bible uh, when God is called holy, holy, holy. And for us to understand that surrounding the throne of God, day and night, for eternity, well, there is no night, but in the presence of God eternally, the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And you begin to understand uh, what it means when God says, my ways are higher than your ways. 
my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That's not all that can be said, but, but understand that, that this is the Bible's first assertion. It's the first assertion. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit was there. And we know by the New Testament uh, that Jesus was there as well. It's a Trinitarian accomplishment. Paul writes in Colossians, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things uh, hold together. So it's a big thing, but I want to reduce it to simply this, that the rhythm of our lives would be, at the beginning, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. It would be a good way to wake up in the morning. It would be a good thing before you, as your coffee is brewing. You know, just to say, with some reflection, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. When you're standing on the first tee, if you have a morning tea time, to say, you know, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. When you're walking up to your first class at school to say I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth and to expand that to say I trust in God the Father Almighty the maker of heaven and earth I am committed to God the Father Almighty the maker of heaven and earth and I obey God the Father Almighty the maker of heaven and earth that needs to be part of the rhythm of our lives and we'll get into other portions of it at a later time uh, if the Lord wills, let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, as we uh, get ready to come to this supper, uh, we need to be imbued with a sense of the immensity of who you are. And even though you have condescended to communicate to us in human language, um, that is your triumph. Uh, human language is not something to which you submit. Uh, but it's something that, uh, like everything else, you have created and that you have communicated to yourself, uh, yourself to us truly and uh, spiritually. And as we come to this supper, uh, we don't want to treat it as a mundane thing, uh, but rather understand uh, the holiness that, that surrounds it and that penetrates it and that we get to participate in, uh, that somehow in some deeply mysterious and impenetrable way. Uh, you are communicating yourself to us. We are entering communion uh, with Jesus himself. Uh, so please give us grace to eat and drink in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.